0: Turn it together in our copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter two. Looking together at verses sixteen and seventeen. from verse verse 13 for context. Just now, let's go together to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, in this supernatural event, the preaching of the God-breathed Scripture, in the preaching ministry of the risen and ascended Christ, in His ascension gift to His church, to the gathered people of God on the day in which he was raised from the dead. In this thoroughly supernatural worship service, may supernatural grace be at work. Be at work, O God, in the presence of your people in this place. Fill our assembly with your presence. Be at work in each heart to comfort and convict, to convert and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. May we live out of Him this day. May we grow in our love and appreciate, appreciation of Him now. We ask in His name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, "'By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, "'this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. "'He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame "'by triumphing over them in him. "'Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink "'or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. "'These are a shadow of the things to come.' But the substance belongs to Christ. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Beginning at verse 16, we come to a new section in Paul's epistle to the Colossians, but we are still seeing the significance seen in verse 16, therefore, we are still seeing the significance of resurrection with Christ back in verses 12 and 13. This new section from verse 16 to the end of the chapter deals with this question. Now that we have newness of life in Jesus Christ, are we obligated to observe extraordinary religious practices? This is where we come into contact more with whatever the Colossian heresy was, this false teaching Paul was dealing with here in this letter. And although we don't know the details It's safe to say that the Colossian heresy was the insistence that you must observe a combination of old covenant ceremonial laws along with pagan practices in order to achieve spiritual fullness and come into God's presence. Christ will bring you close to accessing God, but in order to go all the way, you have to take advantage of the buffet of Israel's practices and the world's practices. Here in verses 16 and 17, Paul begins to address this false teaching more directly, even though he has been demolishing it up to this point. And as far as this hybrid nature of the false teaching goes, how it's a combination of old covenant laws of Israel from Moses onward, along with the Greek philosophical cultural practices in vogue at the time, Here in verses 16 and 17, I think the focus is on the Jewish aspect of that false teaching. This false teaching fails to appreciate the monumental significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This false teaching sees Christ merely as one factor among many others that you need in order to get into the presence of God. This false teaching, the proponents of it might say, Listen, believing in Christ is great. What could it hurt? But let's not be crazy. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You need to diversify your spiritual portfolio. Take some of what Israel was doing. They had some interesting things going on. Take some of what the rest of the world is doing. Mix it up a little bit. Sure, we can get Christ in there too, but there's no one right answer. There's no one way to God. Take all the spiritual ingredients you can get your hands on And then you'll achieve fullness. And Pastor Paul continues to show us the all-sufficient fullness of the one Savior, Jesus Christ, here. There is nothing Christ has left undone. The resurrection of Christ and our resurrection with him is so full of newness of life, and it so intimately brings us near to God that everything else is less than emptiness by comparison. So as Paul focuses on the Jewish requirements of this false teaching here in verses 16 and 17, some of the old covenant ceremonial laws of Israel, he wants us to see in particular that the resurrection of Christ is so monumentally significant that it does away with all the provisional and preparatory practices of God's people up to that point. There's no point In practicing the things that pointed forward to Christ, that prepared the way for Christ, now that Christ has come, he is the abundant fulfillment of all those things. So let's look at this now in two ways. We'll look at first the shadows, and then secondly, the substance. So, first of all, the shadows. In this first point, I want us to think about those issues Paul mentions there in verse 16 questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. All those things there, food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath, Paul summarizes in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come. Now, before we get into the particular things, the particular shadows that Paul mentions there, just think in general what image Paul is using, what a shadow is. You walk outside The sun is shining down. You see your shadow on the ground. You can see your outline in the shadow. You can even discern some details of who you are in your shadow. You can see how many fingers you have, whether you're wearing a suit or a dress, if you have a hat on, etc. It is a true, real presentation of you in the shadow. But the shadow has no meaning or significance apart from you. If you walk back inside, the shadow would go away. You can only tell what the shadow is in the few basic details it presents of you, because it is derived from you. The shadow has no significance alone, in and of itself. The significance of the shadow depends on you. You are the real thing in 4K resolution, and your shadow is the dim, faint copy in black and white. Make sense? Keep this in mind as as we move on. So what are these particular shadows Paul is talking about here? We could break these things down into dietary laws and calendar or holiday laws. Food and drink on the one hand, festival, new moon, and Sabbath on the other. But Greg Beale makes the helpful observation that we should see these things together. The primary purpose of all these laws, mentioned in verse 16, all these laws in the Old Testament were to enable the Israelites to become clean and be able to enter into God's tabernacle or temple to worship him. That was the point of these dietary and holiday laws from Moses onward. Avoid what makes you ceremonially unclean and unable to come into God's presence and only make use of what is ceremonially clean and allows you to come into God's presence. Think about food and drink from Levit- Leviticus 20, 25 and 26. You shall separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So, there it is clear that avoiding certain unclean foods is not because they are inherently poisonous or inherently unclean in some way, it is to put a visible marker to distinguish Israel from the rest of the world. It is to show that God's people are separate. They are special and set apart unto God for his own sake, such that whatever he says no to, things that he has created that he says no to for a time, they will say, yes, Lord, and be devoted to him, consecrated to him, obeying his will, avoiding what he calls ceremonially unclean. The dietary laws that God put in place were part of that barrier this separated the Jews from the Gentiles, Israel from the rest of the world. These same dietary laws are what enabled Old Testament worshipers to participate in tabernacle and then temple worship coming into God's presence. Think also of the, the holiday markers, th- those days mentioned in verse 16. Think in particular of the festivals mentioned there. One such festival would be Passover in the, the, past, the, the, the festival of unleavened bread. Exodus 12 mentions multiple times that unleavened bread was required during this observance. That as they celebrated the meal of the lamb and the unleavened bread, the children would say, what is the meaning of these things? And the parents would say to the children, our God was gracious to us as we put the blood of the lamb on our doorpost, and as the the angel of death passed over Egypt, he would visit those, those houses without blood in death, but he would pass over the houses with blood and preserve their lives. Passover was a monumentally significant part of the redemption of God's people as blood covered those and, and, and gave them life, preserved their life. And it was a way to pass on the faith from generation to generation. These festivals, these special meals, were part of Israel's old covenant worship. But those three days, those three time markers there in verse 16, festival, new moon, and Sabbath, ought to be taken together. They often come together in the Old Testament, and they are linked to the worship of God in the temple. Think of 1st. Chronicles 23, for example, where David oversees the Levites who were to assist in the house of the Lord whenever burnt offerings were offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days according to the number required of them regularly before the Lord. So here in both the dietary restrictions and the day restrictions, we are talking here about the old covenant worship of God connected to the sacrificial system in the temple. And that is why I can only say as a quick side note that all of this shows us that Colossians 2, here Paul is not abrogating the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath day was given in creation before Israel, As God held out to Adam the prospect to go from his lower earthly life and enter heavenly Sabbath rest in in the highest kind of life with him, which is what the Sabbath signified. Adam failed to do this, but the second Adam succeeded in doing this in bringing his people into heavenly Sabbath rest. As we'll see in Colossians, as you see throughout Paul's epistles, what matters is keeping the commandments, the, the moral law. Many of the, of the Ten Commandments are mentioned here in the book of Colossians. The, the Ten Commandments, including the fourth, the fourth commandment about the Sabbath, continues in force today. So Paul here is not talking about the Sabbath as a creation ordinance set down in the moral law, that Sabbath being abrogated. Rather, please get this, Paul is showing us That Sabbath regulations connected to the temple and to all that went along with temple worship, such as animal sacrifice. That has been done away with in the coming of Christ. Paul wants us to see the peculiar preparatory nature of these laws in association with animal sacrifice and temple worship, Sabbaths here being plural in verse 16, the the other time markers being singular, Sabbath here is actually plural, showing, I think, that Paul's referring to the whole Jewish system of Sabbath regulations tied to the temple. So Paul is showing us here that the coming of Christ is so significant that we should no more require the observance of Jewish holy days and all that went around holy days any more than we should require animal sacrifice or circumcision. All of these things are mere shadows that show us dim, faint glimpses of Christ. Now, it leads us, secondly, to see the substance. We've seen the shadows. Now, let's look at the substance. That's in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, all of these things here, in the dietary restrictions, associated with the worship of God in tabernacle and temple, the special holy days, whether adding to the Sabbath commandment or surrounding the Sabbath commandment, all of these things are a shadow of better things to come. They're pointing forward to better things. In fact, this word here, shadow, can have the sense of foreshadow shows something ahead of time in an earlier form, in a beta form, lower provisional, a model train kind of way. Now at this point, as as I want to unpack for us the significance of the shadows in connection with the substance, take your hymnals, and let's turn to a couple paragraphs in our Confession of Faith. So in the back of our hymnals, Let's go to the Confession of Faith, chapter 7. This is page 852. Chapter 7 on God's covenant with man, the different ways God's covenant was administered under the time of the law, the Old Covenant, versus now the New Covenant, the time of the Gospel. Look at chapter 7 and paragraph 5. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal, Passover, lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. I love paragraphs like this. Do you see what the Westminster Assembly is saying about the shadows like the Passover lamb and circumcision and other things, things Paul is talking about here, how they are summarizing this in chapter 7, paragraph 5. These were not the the, the inventions of the Jews. This is not the way they expressed themselves in worship, things that they came up with. These were things that God gave to them, and they were not mute pictures, things that merely reminded them of a Savior who would somehow correspond to these things later on. What does it say there in paragraph five? Th- these things all foresignified, they foreshadowed, they gave ahead of time Christ yet to come. So, in a most glorious, incomprehensible way that we cannot illustrate, that pushes the illustration of this shadow and substance terminology, it was Christ who was communicated in these shadows. And the people of God, as they observed the dietary restrictions, as they observed all these holiday ordinances, they had a, an ahead-of-time communion with Christ, who is yet to come. Or look also on the next page, page 853, looking at the chapter 8 on Christ, chapter 8 in paragraph 6. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought, not actually accomplished by Christ till after his incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. So in elaboration of what we just read in the previous paragraph, the previous chapter, it is not that these animal sacrifices, any more than these dietary restrictions or these these holiday observances, merely reminded the people of of God of, of someone who would fulfill these things later on. It was rather that in observing these things, Christ was communicated to the people of God in and by these things. Because there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, his full accomplished work upon the cross and the empty tomb was communicated backwards to the people of God because that is the only way man may be made right with the holy God. What wondrous supernatural r- religion is ours. Let's look at one more Paragraph from the Confession talking about these these old ceremonial things. Go over to chapter 19. This is on page 859. And paragraph 3. Chapter 19, paragraph 3. Beside this law, commonly called moral, besides the moral law, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth divers, diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So for this paragraph, I'll simply say Go sometime and read Galatians chapter 3 and how Paul there talks about how Israel was like a church under age, under the, the tutelage of a disciplinarian, and all these ceremonial laws were keeping Israel in place and were getting them ready for the coming of Christ in the fullness of time. That was the significance of all these temporary ceremonial laws as God was communicating the significance of Christ to his people in them, getting his people ready for the coming of Christ in the fullness of time. So those things are the shadows, but as we see in verse 17 here, they are shadows of things to come, the substance of which is Christ. So moving from shadow to substance now, we see that the substance of all these things is Christ. The significance of these dietary and calendar laws, avoiding what is unclean and pursuing what is clean, what is required to enter into God's presence in the tabernacle and temple, this is all fulfilled by and points to Christ and his perfect work. This word here in verse 17, translated substance, can also be translated body, body. The body belongs to Christ. And this is, this is indicating that the, the body is the real thing. A shadow is a glimpse of it, but the body is the thing itself, the reality. The body stands in contrast to the shadow. So talking about the shadow earlier, we, we talked about how the shadow can show your outline, show some features of you, but compared to you... The shadow is practically nothing. When we move from your shadow to you, we're moving from one color to living color. We're moving from outline to the fullness of your person. We're moving from something that is a mere glimpse at best of who you are. So, all these dietary laws, these special holiday observances, what were they doing? They were giving Moses and all the Israelites a glimpse, a foretaste of Christ. So, and this is the point of all this. Now that we have Christ, why in the world would you go back to his shadow? That's the point. If I look off in the distance and I see my wife coming toward me, and the sun shines her shadow on the ground, I can see that I'm almost with her. There, there's her shadow. I'm, I'm so close, just, just a little farther till I get her. There's the outline of her hair and her shoulders. The shadow is giving way to the real thing. And I finally get past the shadow and actually get my wife the real thing. How wonderful. She's so much better than a glimpse of her. She's so much better than something that faintly shows her. Yes, her shadow shows me something true, about my wife. It shows me that she is near, though at a distance. But the shadow I don't want is nothing compared to the real thing. Her face, her presence, her friendship, her correction, her encouragement. And what if, once I finally got to my wife, I turned around and gazed at her shadow instead? Oh, yes, look at this dim, faceless shadow of my wife. Yes, it's so wonderful. It's ridiculous, isn't it? That's how ridiculous it is to insist on observing Israel's dietary and calendar laws in a day when Christ, the real thing that all those laws pointed to and communicated ahead of time now that he has finally come. Why would you go back In the history of redemption, why would you hit it in reverse once you've hit your destination? Paul wants us to see all in this section that a new day has appeared in the coming of Christ. Shadows have given way to the real thing. The resurrection of Christ marks the beginning of a new creation because Christ now lives by the power of an otherworldly, indestructible life. And as we have been raised with Christ, we even now are in contact with those heavenly things because he is in heaven for us. And we'll see this later on in chapter 3. Because Christ is in heaven, in the heavenly temple, why would we go back to earthly temple worship? We come to God's presence in Christ's heavenly ascension. And Christ himself is that temple. Think of John chapter 2. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple and drove out the money changers? And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. There Christ shows us that in his resurrection from the dead, all the opulence and artwork of the tabernacle and the temple, such ornate building, such <clears throat> would put us in such bankruptcy to get all that gold and all that silver and all those precious materials to build such a thing, that was then destroyed by the Babylonians. And then Ezra is destroyed by the Romans. Christ is showing that in his resurrection, he is a temple dwelling of God with his people that cannot be shaken or destroyed. He is the permanent presence of God with his people, and in union with that temple Jesus Christ, we are in God's presence. Can't get any closer to him, nothing to add, no practices to observe to get closer. If you're in Christ, you're near unto God. If you're in Christ, you have spiritual fullness. Don't add to it, live out of it it is christ who brings us near to god in the true dwelling place of god in heaven therefore all the lower shadowy regulations that surrounded the earthly temple worship of god are gone because the earthly temple has given way to the real temple presence of god in the risen savior jesus christ we see this in the new testament elsewhere Food and drink, those regulations are fulfilled in Christ. Acts chapter 10, Peter receiving the rooftop vision, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. The clean-unclean distinction true for earthly temple worship is done away with because Christ our temple has been raised from the dead and brought us into God's presence in the real thing in heaven itself. Think of Ephesians 2, 11 and following. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So there is no division within the people of God any longer. Those who observe a clean, unclean distinction and those who don't. There is now one Israel of God, Jew and Gentile. It is not by observing Israel's old ceremonial laws that brings you near to God. It is Christ who does this, and Christ has abolished these old laws. we think of at least a couple of the days mentioned, at least by implication in verse 16. There is no more Passover. Why? 1 Corinthians 5.7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, is "...has been sacrificed. All that was signified and communicated in the Passover meal and observation is fulfilled in Christ, and he has been sacrificed once and for all. No more annual Day of Atonement. No more sinful priest offering sacrifices for himself first, than offering the ineffectual blood of something other than him, going into an earthly, pathetic copy of God's presence on earth." over and over again because of the ineffectiveness of his work. One sacrifice of one perfect Lamb of God that actually takes away the sin of the world in heaven itself. No more annual Day of Atonement, no more repetition of sacrifices, and therefore no more observation surrounding those sacrifices because of Christ's perfect once and for all sacrifice. See this in Hebrews 9. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own, for then He would have to have, He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so all of this comes together to show the force of the command in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you concerning these things. The therefore, of course, coming in the light of the resurrection of Christ and resurrection with him, this implication necessarily follows and must be heeded. No one. Same kind of exclusion, total exclusion we saw back in chapter 2, verse 8. Whether it is, as we'll see later on in chapter 2, the Gentiles wanting to practice their made-up rituals combined with Christianity. Whether it's the Jews wanting to hold on to the old things, not appreciating that they are shadows that give way to the substance in Christ. Whether it's today the countless ways Christians insist on their ideas, which aren't from the Bible, or can only be said to be from the Bible by a convoluted reasoning process, must be observed by all Christians. No one. Let no one judge you in observing anything that is not in accordance with Christ. This is a present imperative. It is an ongoing thing. Let no one find fault with you, pass an unfavorable judgment against you. And this is especially significant coming off of verses 14 and 15. As the record of debt that stood against us has been canceled in Christ's death and resurrection, as the accuser, the evil one in verse 15, has his only case against us has been taken from him and he has nothing to accuse us of any longer, well then verse 16, let no one else accuse you. Satan can't accuse you, If God is for us, who can be against us? Let no one insist on anything being added to Christ. You just stick to Christ and his full significance. So in light of Christ's coming, the revelation of the mystery, the accomplishment of redemption, the coming of the kingdom, Paul wants us to appreciate here that monumental changes have taken place. Now that you have been raised with Christ, your job, Christian, is to stick with him and the new way of life that has appeared in him and refuse to let anyone add to or take away from what he has done. Stick with Christ and appreciate him in all of his significance. Think of these other passages from Paul and Hebrews showing us this new way of things, leaving off the old way of life in Israel. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Hebrews 12, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant." Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Or Hebrews 13, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And in the, in the words of our closing hymn, finished all the types and shadows of the ceremonial law, finished all that God had promised, death and hell no more shall all. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Saints, from hence your comfort draw. So, dear congregation, we live in such wonderfully privileged days now that Christ has come and has died and been raised from the dead. Everything that the ceremonial law dimly revealed of Christ, all of that has been fulfilled in Christ himself. He is the real thing. Live out of him, not his shadow. Let no one judge you about the dim shadows of Christ when you have Christ raised from the dead and ascended into heavenly glory. Don't go backwards in the history of redemption. Rather, press on in living communion with your all-sufficient Savior, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen, and may God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word.